Hello, and welcome to the CSED Podcast, a podcast where we talk about teaching computer science with computer science educators. We've decided to start something new. Rather than a season with a clear number of episodes, we've picked a theme and we'll run with it until we run out. This season's theme is What's Next, where we focus on how we've rethought our teaching since COVID-19 came and upended everything. I am your host, Kristen Stevens-Martinez, an assistant professor of the practice at Duke University. And hopefully, this is a welcome back to many members of the audience as we do part two of my discussion with Brett Wartzman and Kevin Lynn. Brett and Kevin, how about you reintroduce yourself for the audience, assuming that potentially they haven't listened to part one yet? All right. Hi, Kristen. Good to be back. Uh, my name is Brett Wurtzman. I use he, him pronouns. I am an assistant teaching professor at the Paul G. Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Washington, Seattle. My primary focus is on teaching our large CS1 course, CSE 142, which has anywhere between about 400 and about 1,000 students in any given quarter. And I'm also heavily involved in our CS pedagogy, CS teacher training, and all of the kind of practical sides of our CS education work that we're beginning to ramp up here. And hi, my name is Kevin Lin. I'm an assistant teaching professor in the Allen School, just like Brett. And I oftentimes teach kind of the follow-up courses to Brett's 142, known as 143 at UW. And I've also taught the follow-up courses to that. So you can think of programming, but also a little bit of data structure and maybe some data science work. I'm also interested in teaching um, design courses for more critical methods in computing and how do we teach computer science education. And those have also been a focus of mine's working with a few undergraduate and graduate students. So our discussion is on mastery grading or alternative grading with a focus on large, lower level computer science classes. And in the first episode, we kind of focused on the why and kind of the more philosophical, like what's going on and why do we teach these kind of classes, as well as different things to think about or talk about to someone who's thinking about doing this kind of thing, but isn't quite convinced that it's worth the work. So that was the focus of the first part. And so in this episode, we really wanted to get into the nuts and bolts of the details of how all of this was done. And the reason why I invited Kevin and Brett onto the podcast is because they have both taught large classes using at least elements, if not fully changed their syllabus to be mastery grading or alternative grading. So I think since Brett is the one that has more experience teaching a large CS1 class, we can ask Brett to go first. And I believe then Kevin can kind of say, given what Brett said, this is how the slight tweaks that I do for my class. So Brett, tell me more about CS1. Sure. So um, I'll preface this with, we'll get into the differences that Kevin and I have in our systems, but we really developed the baseline for this together. Uh, And so there are a lot of similarities and a lot of similar philosophies here. I tend to think of the changes we made as having a few main components. Uh, The first and the most obvious one usually to students is that we allow resubmission of work and we allow resubmission of work without limits on how much credit can be earned back. The notion of credit gets a little weird because of other changes we've made. It's not points. Um, So we'll get into that in a minute. But students can resubmit previous assignments after they have already submitted them and after they have received feedback from the course staff on the work they have done so far. And they can use that as an opportunity to demonstrate that they have improved or increased their mastery of the necessary or the targeted concepts. And then the new grades will replace the old grades and the newest version of the grade for each assignment is what will be used in our final grade computation. 
I just wanted to interrupt and ask a clarifying question. So when you say they get back the grading or the feedback or whatever before they can do that resubmission, you mean like they get back the hand-graded piece to the assignment and then they get to submit again? Correct. Okay. That sounds like a lot of work because if they get to resubmit, we have to do it again. But that's the part I wanted to make sure was clear. Yes. And we can talk a little bit about things we've done to mitigate that workload. Um, We can go through kind of the mechanics first. So resubmissions are the most obvious piece. uh, And that's really the mastery piece of this where we're focused on, like we talked about in the first episode, evaluating students' mastery of the concepts at the end of the course rather than at whatever arbitrary point in the middle of the course we decided to give them the assessment on those particular concepts. The second piece is that we changed the way we assign grades on individual assignments. We moved away from a points-based system to a more qualitative, more coarse-grained system. For us, we call it ESNU. Uh, which we sometimes pronounce S new, uh, where E is exemplary, S is satisfactory, N is not yet, and U is unaccessible. And we chose those names very carefully uh, because those words really mean what we're trying to have each of those grades mean. And so, for example, the lowest grade uh, that U is unaccessible. It's not failing, it's not incomplete, it's not poor work. It is the work that is there does not allow us to properly assess your mastery. And then the other one on the lower side, the other what we would consider maybe not passing, uh, and we don't even talk about it that way, is the N, which is not yet, not, it's not needs improvement, it's not unsatisfactory, it's not yet. Your mastery is still developing. So we went to this ESNU system, um, and we tried as much as possible to get points and numbers out of our system entirely so that students will stop treating it as an optimization problem and trying to do the complicated math of which points can I get to bring up my grade and how much does each point matter and where is the most valuable thing for me to spend my time on and instead get them just focus on mastering the learning objectives as we present them and as we work with them. So that's the second big piece. And then the third big piece related to that ESNU change is the way we compute final grades. Because we don't have points, we can't do averages, which is one of the goals. Um, You know, when you read Feldman or listen to your episode, Kristen, with Feldman, he talks about points being fungible and all the inequities in weighted averages, the traditional way of computing final grades. So we wanted to step away from that. And instead, what we do is we create what we have termed bundles, which are collections of evidence of work that we then assign to various grades. So at UW, we give grades on a full 4.0 system in 0.1 increments, which has its own set of challenges that we can save for another day. Um, But this would apply even if you're in a more traditional kind of A, B, C, with or without plus or minus systems. We define a particular bundle of work that we say represents B-level work, or for us it would be 3.0 level work. And we say, if your collection of work over the course of the entire quarter meets or exceeds this collection of work that we have defined as a 3.0, you will receive a final grade of at least a 3.0. And we release those not for every possible 0.1, but for a set of them. And then we have ways of interpolating in between as necessary. So the one neat side effect of that is that doing work never causes a student's grade to go down. 
So in a traditional weighted average points-based system, if I am currently carrying a weighted average of, say, an 87, and I submit some work, and that work I didn't do as well on, and I get what amounts to you know a 70% of the possible points on that particular assignment, my overall grade is now worse off than if that assignment never existed. If that assignment were removed entirely from the course, I would have been better off. So I am incentivized potentially to not do this work, modulo things like zeros and such like that. And we really wanted to be in a place where students are always incentivized to do more work, to put in more effort, to continue working towards their mastery. So because we have these bundles and they're made up of counting things, every time you submit more work, you're going to increase your count of something, and that is only potentially going to have your final grade calculation go up. So you're always improving over the course of the quarter. There are a lot more details, but at least from my perspective, those are the three high-level points of our implementation. All right. So given that system, Kevin, how is your system different? And like, what class is this for? Yeah, so I've been experimenting and changing things quite a bit. I'm not sure if, Brett, you've been changing things as much as I have been changing things every quarter. Um, even within my own kind of pedagogy and grading practices, I feel like one of the major differences between our grading systems is the amount of precision that's encoded in the way Brett um, does like grading for the assignments, for example. Uh, he mentioned SNU, the four-level scale, exemplary, satisfactory, not yet unaccessible. But there's an interesting kind of trade-off there of like, you know, you can imagine having that grading system, there's a question there of like, how many levels do you want? How much precision do you actually want in your assignment as an instrument of measuring mastery um, or proficiency or understanding of that knowledge? And I think there's an interesting kind of fine line there about, well, what actually matters for this? And what do I actually care about for determining grades? Um, the philosophy I've taken is to try to be as minimal as possible. And this is especially interesting because at you know, UW, we mentioned we have a 4.0 grading scale. But that means I only need to give out, it sounds crazy when I say it, 33 different possible grade levels. <laughs> I think if you think about it from that perspective, then that gives you an upper bound for the amount of like complexity that you need in your system. In theory, like if you don't necessarily need more than that amount of complexity in order to assign grades using the 0.1 increments. And that's an assumption even that I need to assign grades in 0.1 increments, um, which unfortunately the school says is pretty important. So I will try to figure out how do I finagle that conversation. And, and I think this is the best I've come up with is like, I should think about it in terms of what level of complexity do I need to assign final grades, where my goal really is to minimize the stress of getting like grades where even I feel ESNU might expand that stress in the sense that like, oh, I have to get an E because the bundles for a 4.0 says I need to get a lot of E's. Right. So I think from my perspective is what can I do to make that stress level lower through the ways in which I simplify my grading system, even when we're talking about this more bundle based or specifications based grading system. So that I think is one of the biggest differences that I have in general. And I can also dive deeper into particular differences if you're curious. Could you be a little bit more concrete what you mean by you are making something more simpler than Brett's version? Yeah, well, Brett, I think has been a little bit ingenuous <laughs> um, when he's saying that it's just ESNU. But when in Brett's version, for each assignment, there's ESNU, but it's across four different dimensions. So you can think of, in theory, there's almost like 16 points of delineation for an assignment. And there it's like you're very much in the territory of like, could this really be points? <laughs> and what are the implications of having points? Um, one of the embedded assumptions about a numeric or quantitative point system is that two is twice as good as one. 
and three is three times as good as one. And, and so there's all sorts of interesting conversations or ideas, philosophies around, does it make sense to have points versus ESNU? And one of the big differences I feel is that ESNU means that you cannot read it as two is twice as good as one and have that kind of inbuilt comparison. Um, so for me, that was one of the thoughts was thinking about all this conversation that I've just mentioned about um, the complexity that's embedded in grading on essentially 16 points of difference on an assignment. And then what could we do to reduce the complexity of that? So for my own assignments, the way I see it is that I feel like I have a lot of standardized work in my course. Uh, but I also want to have some creative work and some work that allows students to expand their knowledge. And my expectation really is that I want everyone to be able to deliver high quality work. So with all those three assumptions, I have most of my work graded just satisfactory or not yet. And that just simplifies everything. So even for my large projects, my two week long programming projects that involve analysis and extra design, that's still satisfactory or not yet because it's standardized work. And I expect students will be able to get to the satisfactory bar with resubmissions. So I'm setting a very high expectation by saying that because everyone, even if you want a 2.0 or 1.0, you have to get a satisfactory on that project. You cannot like glide by with like some S's here on like a couple of dimensions on the assignments. You have to get an S on the entire project. Um, and that's a pretty high bar, but they, I think the resubmissions encourage that development. Um, and again, the purpose of that change is to say that the standardized work that I have in this course with the projects where everyone's doing the same thing, I want everyone to be able to get that satisfactory requirement. It's really, and this is, I think, the contentious part and the part that I'm still trying to wrap my head around is, what do I do to then to actually differentiate grades? And this is a part that, you know, going back to my conversation from part one, it really hurts my soul <laughs> to talk about it in this framing, right? Like, what have I done <laughs> with this? Because I think when you come down to it, if the school says you have to have some kind of differentiating in your grades, um, in some mechanism, uh, basically just don't give out all 4.0s. What do you have to do to get that differentiation? And philosophically, where do you want to draw that difference from? In the past, like before we started this project, it was exams. We would say most people would do well on assessments. This was true even before we changed the grading system. Like I, I did the math actually, it's like uh, most students in the class, whether you got 2.0 or 4.0, you got 18 out of 20 on the assignments on average, for example. And then it's really the exams that gave you all the differentiation. And then my question there is, is that fair? Is that what we want from the course? Is that how we want to get our differentiation? because that's how things are being done currently. And so there's a big conversation we can have about that. Quick, concrete, nuts and bolts question. When you say satisfactory on an a auto-graded assignment, what is that? Is that a pass all the tests? Or is it a like pass X percent of the tests? Is it pass these, but you don't have to pass those? For myself, it's for when I teach the intro programming course, like Brett mentioned, we have components that are auto-graded and manually graded. A satisfactory requirement for that might look like complete pass all the tests and meet our cold quality or review guidelines. Um, for my more kind of basic data structures course where I have students do analysis, I actually don't have them submit any code. I have them submit a video presentation of walking through those different aspects. And so that presentation should include all the components and meet the requirements that we set for satisfactory. So Brett, Kevin hinted at the fact that you have four pieces to your assignment that are each ESNU. Can you go deeper into like what is auto-graded, what is not? Like how much work is all of that? When I do the ESNU, Kevin's right. I have these four dimensions. And there's a few different reasons we went that way. Um, part of it is to create more differentiation. Kevin's absolutely right. We should have a discussion about whether differentiation is important and the ways in which we are achieving that. But 
we work at a place that offers 33 different final grades at the end and has an administration that says that grades should be differentiated to a certain extent. And so this was the way I went about trying to create some differentiation. But the other thing forward for me was, and this gets back to the purpose of grades, grades are overloaded in general. But one of the specific ways that they are overloaded is they are both a signal to external actors about a student's achievement or mastery or whatever, depending on the particular system you're using, but they are also a mechanism for feedback for students. And so creating these four separate dimensions allowed me to give more nuanced feedback to students, but still in a structured way that they would be ideally more likely to actually read and process than the comments we leave on their code. When we hand grade, we leave comments on their code just like everybody does. But also like most instructors, we have anecdotal and some concrete evidence that not all students actually read that feedback. So by going to the four dimensions, we could at least give them a very quick, very easy to grok way of saying, you're doing great on these pieces of it and you're not doing so great on these other pieces of it. Um, and those four dimensions are roughly aligned with my overarching learning objectives for the course. And they are consistent from assignment to assignment. I have the same four dimensions from assignment to assignment. So they're not shifting. They're broad and high level. And then they are kind of the specific interpretation of them varies as we move from, say, the loops assignment to the arrays assignment or whatever else. In terms of how we grade it, working through these systems was to minimize the impact on the TA's workload as we made these changes. So they are grading the assignments in very much the same way that they were under the old points-based system. But as TAs are grading, they're working one row, one dimension at a time, and they just have to decide which box in each row the student's work is going to end up in. And it's a little bit more holistic, but it also is simpler in that they don't necessarily have to track every single mistake. If they find something that we qualify as this particular thing in a student's code means it's S-level work on this dimension, it's S-level work. It's not going to become E-level work because they did something better later. It might become N-level work if we later find that they made some other error or mistake that uh, is more egregious. But it's just once they're in a box, they're in a box. Um, and they don't have these complex interactions. We do still have a few interactions between dimensions that we are trying to figure out how to get rid of, um, but we're much closer than we were when we were at 20 points. I realize you haven't told us what those four dimensions are yet. You're absolutely right. I should have done that. Um, for the CS1 course, our four dimensions are behavior, Functional decomposition, because that is one of our key learning objectives throughout our CS1 course. We're very methods first, and so one of our key learning objectives from beginning to end of that quarter is students learning to define good methods and break their code up into well-structured methods and code. Um, so functional decomposition is number two. The current name for this third one is use of language features, which is very broad. This kind of captures any versions of the fact that it works isn't sufficient. You should be making good choices in which constructs you use. So this is things like, 
are you using an if-if versus an if-else-if versus an if-else? This is things like, are you using a for loop versus a while loop? This is things like, have you created an array that is actually a meaningful array versus an array that you've just shoved a bunch of values in so that you can treat them as one thing rather than a bunch of separate things? Um, and that's that third one, use of language features, is the most variable for us from assignment to assignment. Although once we add an expectation that, say, you're using the correct conditional concept, construct, it never goes away. We always want you to be using the correct conditional construct. Uh, and then our fourth one is uh, documentation and readability. Um, documentation and readability is things like comments, it's things like variable and method names, it's things like alignment and indentation and white space and just the general readability and presentation of the code, uh, which is something that I think almost all CS1 courses assess. Not all do a great job of teaching, and that includes us. We want to be doing a better job of explicitly teaching those skills, but we do assess on them. So I have a question about the first one. What is behavior? Because my brain goes to student behavior. No, you're right. It is program behavior. It is basically, does your program do your things we want it to do? This is the most auto-graded of our four dimensions. It is still not entirely auto-graded, um, but we do have a large suite of tests. We expose most, if not all of them, to students, but we also do a few manual checks. Sometimes it's because there are things that it's just hard to write automated tests for. Sometimes it's because there are things that the automated test might detect it as incorrect in terms of the output, but there's some ambiguity in the spec and we want to respect that we found that ambiguity and we want to have different interpretations of it. There are lots of different reasons we might do manual checks on that. But the behavior is mostly but not entirely auto-graded. Uh, and then we have some scripts to help with the other dimensions. We have what essentially amounts to a linter to check for some of our common um, readability and use of language features things. Um, but we still have TAs do manual checks on all of that because turns out linters are hard. Uh, and I have not seen or heard of one that perfectly detects exactly the sorts of things you wanted to use and never gets it wrong. Um, so we still want that human oversight there. So you've told us what the four pieces are. So I think another nuts and bolts question. Is excellent work like pass all the autograded tests and like S level work 80%, 75%? Like what is that number? So the way we do it at this point, and this is something we're continuing to refine uh, as we develop the system, we get it in front of real students and we see what kind of turns up. Uh, the way it stands right now, E is passing everything or almost everything. Uh, we might make some very small exceptions, but by and large, you can think of it as passing everything. S, rather than setting a percentage of like pass 80% of the tests or something like that, we identify certain tests or certain behaviors that we consider to be more edge cases or more challenging or for whatever reason, we decide that if you fail this test, you still demonstrated satisfactory mastery, but not exemplary mastery. As opposed to there are other tests we would say, if you fail this test, you did not demonstrate mastery yet. And so you could imagine it's something like on uh, our for loops assignment has a lot of nested loops. We're producing ASCII art. That's a very kind of structured set of output. And you could imagine that like, 
if a student produced output that does not have any of the repetitive or nesting structure that we were looking for, that one test is probably going to require an end grade because they did nothing with loops, which was the crux of the assignment. So they have not demonstrated mastery of the concepts for that assignment. Whereas if they have more or less the correct structure, but like there's some nesting that's weird or they have a couple of characters wrong in their output at one end or the other, we might consider that S where they've demonstrated some mastery. They've demonstrated a decent amount of mastery in being able to produce something that looks more or less like what we want it to look like, but it's not exemplary mastery because they have some errors around the edges. So we don't do it just in terms of number of tests. We look at the specific tests or the specific cases uh, and decide whether that's S-level work or N-level work. Could one of you describe what a bundle is? Like, what is a B bundle versus an A letter grade bundle? Just to kind of help me wrap my head around it. Yeah, I mean, I think this varies, again, between our courses quite a bit. A bundle could include things like if you have all that ESNU counting in Brett's version, if you have eight assignments, and then each of those has four dimensions, so that's 32 dimensions. And so out of those 32 dimensions, you might ask, well, maybe a 4.0 requires like 30 out of 32 being an E. And that might be that part of the bundle. You might have other parts that you care about. Maybe you want students to do a midterm exam or final exam, which this alternative grading system is also compatible with. You might say, hey, you should also get like a 60% on or 70% or 80%, whatever grade cutoff that you feel is appropriate for that exam component. You could say in my bundle for 4.0, you should get an 80% on this exam um, at the end of the quarter or in some sense that assessment of that knowledge. So that bundle for a certain grade could involve counting the number of E's or S's or N's or U's, counting the number of those that appear um, that you would think is appropriate for that level of understanding or that final grade. It can also differ a little bit. Something I've been experimenting with now is trying to make the bundles a clear abstraction. Because one of the challenges that we came up with is when you go through that process as a student, there's a lot of stuff to keep track of. Like you need to count all these different things and probably need a, your own spreadsheet to manage it or your own notes. Um, and so I've been thinking like, can we make the bundles themselves an abstraction that we present to students so they can actually see, have I completed this bundle? So the way I'm organizing my courses nowadays is I'm using what we call modules, which is basically a couple weeks in a course. And I say to get a 2.0, you have to complete the first two or first three modules of the course. And that just involves getting check marks or satisfactory grades on all the components. And the nice thing is that I just have it synced in our learning management system. So once they get something done in the learning management system, it'll show up. And then once they finish the entire module, the learning management system says, you're done with the module too. So they can actually just very clearly see that let's make that clear to them. So there's definitely different approaches to thinking about bundles and depends a little bit on like the complexity of your system and what you want to count basically. You can also be more specific and say, I think it is really important that students master or understand or have show proficiency on this particular assignment. So I want everyone to have done this one. So you can be definitely be more specific about that. And I think that's one area that we still haven't, I may be just starting to, to think about now with the module-based system. Um, because if you're just counting, those E's can come from any assignments on any dimensions. Like maybe you actually want everyone to get an S on behavior because you think it's really important that they write correct programs by the end of the quarter. Um, so you can actually say that's an important value in my bundle. As another kind of concrete example of that, and Kevin's absolutely right, that one of the nice things with these bundles is you can be very explicit about what you want students to achieve or complete 
for each grade as opposed to being more fungible in a points-based system, again, to steal Feldman's term. And so like one of the things that I do is I have these four dimensions for the highest levels of grades in my class. I care not only that you get a certain number of E's across all of your assessments, but I also care that those E's are relatively evenly distributed across my four dimensions. So the idea there is that you're, if you're going to get a very top grade in the course, I want you to be well-rounded across all my learning objectives. I don't want a student to be able to, for example, always get the behavior exactly correct and not care at all about documentation and readability. So that's a priority that I have made in my bundles. doesn't have to be that way. You could also decide, like Kevin said, that I don't care about all your other three, but you'd better get an E on behavior every time. Because if you're going to get a really high grade in this course, you better be able to produce functionally correct programs. You could decide that that's your priority and any number of other things. I think it's really unique what Kevin just said. I hadn't thought about this before, about you could pick an assignment and say, like, the seventh programming assignment is our really big one that kind of puts all the things together. If you want to get a really high grade in this course, you had better do a really good job on that assignment, and you could decide to prioritize that. So there's a lot of flexibility here. Yeah, this is reminding me of, like, for our intermediate data science class, one of the things I'm dabbling with is I'm going to convert each, like, week of things into, like, a module, and then... I'll tell the students that, like, if you do X number of modules or the first X number, you will get a B. And if you want to get an A, you got to do a group project. Like, if you don't want to do a group project and you don't need an A, you can skip that part. And the other thing that I would have those, like, X required modules done by a certain point of the semester. And then for students who don't get it done by that point, I was thinking, okay, you don't get to do the project but now you can stretch your deadlines all the way to the end of the semester. So you can get some kind of B and now you have an extra three, four weeks to get it all done because you're not going to do the project. I had a thought that I wanted to articulate that I was learning when I was reading about specification grading that I really liked how she described it in the book where instead of thinking of in terms of bundles, when it comes to assigning letter grades, one way to think about it is either the number of hurdles the students have to achieve or the height of the hurdles that the students have to jump over. Though I don't like the word jump over because it makes it sound like just grunt work rather than like mentally achieving some kind of learning. But that was kind of the metaphor that she kept using. So like if a student wanted to get an A, they have to do X number of hurdles. And if they want a B, they can do X minus two number of hurdles. And that kind of thing. That was one way to do it. The other way to do it would be if you want an A, you have to be able to jump over, air quotes, this height of every hurdle to get an A. But you can jump over this height of every hurdle, which is slightly shorter, to get a B. That kind of was how she kind of framed it. And I really liked that framing because it helped me think about, well, that means I could have like a different number of hurdles per bundle or different heights per bundle and also like mix and match as necessary. So I wanted to let, like, get that metaphor out there and see if, does that resonate for you all? I think it does for me. And I think it kind of gets at, I keep coming back to this idea of 
points being fungible or interchangeable. And that's not an inherent problem with points, but it is an issue with the way we tend as educators to use points. And it's the fact that the way I do my system with the different dimensions or the way Kevin does his system with just the one grade on each assignment or what you're describing here, Kristen, with like these different types of assignments that mean different things, it's all different versions of communicating to students what our priorities for them in terms of the work we're asking them to do are. So we are able to signal to students that this is what we think it means to achieve this certain grade, or this is what we need to see you demonstrate to achieve this certain grade. And by being very clear about that up front, this is where we get at increased student agency. We are telling them, if you want to be, I'll use your example, Kristen, right? Like, if you want to be, you need to complete this many modules. I am telling you that up front. I am making you that promise. Complete this many modules. You will get at least a B. If you want an A, you also need to do a group project. If you don't want to do a group project, that's your choice to make, but that means that you are not going to get an A. And now it's in the student's hands what choice they make there. We're giving them the ability to make those trade-offs for themselves when they have a really busy week uh, or something like that. And I'll also say that I think none of these things are incompatible with, say, a points-based grading system. None of these things rely on any of these other implementations we've made. You don't need resubmissions. You don't need ESNU or something like it. You could take you know, a series of assignments that have existed in your course forever and are graded on a points-based scale, and that points-based scale has existed forever, and you could just change the way final grades are computed. And instead of saying your final grade is this weighted average of all of these different things, and then 90% is an A and 80% is a B or whatever, you could say final grades are computed by, to get an A, you must get at least 18 out of 20 on these assignments, and nine out of 10 on this other assignment. And to get a B, you need to get 18 out of 20 on fewer assignments, or you need to get, you know, only get 16 out of 20 on the same number of assignments to use your kind of number of hurdles versus height of hurdles thing. Like you can do all of that and keep your assignments and the way you grade your individual assignments exactly the same as you've always had before. So for you, Kristen, or anyone else who's listening, who's like, I love this idea of bundles, but this whole mastery thing scares me. You don't have to go all the way in on all of these other things. You could just go to a bundles version of final grade computation and do it based on number of points earned instead of an ESNU sort of thing. Yeah, even for the bundle system, without going to full resubmissions, you could even say, well, you know, maybe if I want to have grades capture or represent knowledge at the end of the course, then you could say, well, maybe I want to somehow say that this grade that you get on the last assignment, because it also includes skills from earlier assignments, can also override it or because you have this kind of opportunity to say that, you know, this last assignment, it meets the same learning objectives or covers all the learning objectives of other ones, that can be a good representation. And so that final assignment is kind of like, enables you to be that automatic resubmission um, without introducing more work. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it would be a useful exercise to just like come up with the new grade calculation and just run it on like the prior semester's grade book just to see what it does. Though I think, if I ever did that, I would first have to ask myself, like, what would I expect to see? What would I want to see? And what would I be upset by before I do that? Because it's so easy to kind of rationalize the results once you see them. All right. So I want to be careful of time. And normally I would have asked you, like, as we transition out of the pandemic, what are you changing and keeping the same in your teaching and why? But I feel like we've covered a lot of that already. So instead, I think I'll just do TLDL. 
too long, didn't listen. What would you say is the most important thing for part two of our two-part episodes that you want our listeners to get out of our conversation? Yeah, so for my too long, didn't listen, I think what is most important to me is to think about what are your constraints and have that conversation about like, it might be a very different story at your university, honestly. Like at our university, UW, so we have the 4.0 scale. And then based on that constraint, then I have to, and the reasoning being that you have to sign on 0.1 increments, then I have to design to some extent my grading system around that assumption. But if you're on a system with A, B, C, D, and there are also even you know some universities, some schools that don't even have plus minuses, that gives you a lot more freedom to say, well, maybe I don't actually want that many grades in my assignments. <laughs> um, well, maybe I want to have students to focus on feedback. What are mechanisms for enabling that? You know, the mechanisms could involve grades. I like how Brett was mentioning earlier that you could have grades as a mechanism for helping summarize the feedback that's in your system. But you have to be thoughtful about how do I communicate that still, especially when I have multiple grades in an assignment. But it is an opportunity, I think, to rethink, you know, what do I actually want my different parts of my grade to represent? And what do I actually need in terms of determining the final grade? I would think about what are your constraints and then based on those constraints, what could you work with inside that design space? Whether you're thinking about number of hurdles, um, the height of that hurdles, or some combination of those questions. Kevin talked about some of the things I was going to talk about. So I will talk about what I expected Kevin to talk about. And it's related to what Kevin said, which is there are varying levels of complexity you can have in grades. And I think it's really important when you're designing any grading system, be it a very traditional weighted average points-based system or something that's mastery-based or broader or coarser like we've done or anything anywhere on those various spectra, think about how much complexity you want to have for yourself as an instructor, for your course staff and TAs if you have them, and for your students. And think about what value that complexity is adding. You know, Kevin is absolutely right that having those four dimensions like I have adds complexity and his system is much simpler having a single grade per assignment. I have made the choice that that complexity is worth it for me because it allows me to communicate a little bit more signal to students, but it also absolutely makes it harder for students to keep track of what's going on and it adds some complexity to the grading load for my TAs. And so I have thus far decided that trade-off is worth it. I will be constantly revisiting that choice in light of new information as we run this more and more. And for any individual instructor, thinking about what their priorities are and how that works at whatever scale you happen to be working at. It's a little interesting that I tend to teach at the larger scale, but I've also chosen the slightly more complex grading system because you would normally think that it would be the other way around, that the larger scale would drive me to a simpler system. And so it can be done at scale. We know because we've done it. It's not trivial, uh, and it absolutely requires effort there, but it is doable. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Kevin and Brett. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks, Kristen. And this was the CSED podcast hosted by me, Kristen Stevens-Martinez, and produced by Amarachi Anokoronye. And remember, teaching computer science is more than just knowing computer science, and I hope you found something useful for your teaching today.